on a God-fearing work ethic and had planned to do so up until about an hour ago, but I just could not. My heart is not there. It did not feel appropriate. And so I'm not going to do that. Quite frankly, in a lot of senses of the word, something that I've never been able to say to you before, I'm not entirely sure how, what I'm going to say. I tend to be a, a pretty calculated person, and I hope I mean that in the best sense of the word. I try to be prepared, and I try to be ready. But today is not the day for us to talk about work ethic. Today is not the day for us to talk about laziness. Today is the day for us to talk about the will of God. Today is the day for us to talk about the suffering that so many of us will endure. All of us in some form or another and how all of that fits together. And so my intention is for us to perhaps read more than I speak. But to move through the scriptures so that this morning we leave with hope. So that this morning we leave with some understanding of how the sovereign goodness of God and the sovereign power of God interact with brokenness and interact with suffering and interact with struggle and interact with difficulty and the death of infants and the cancer of our parents and the struggles and the laying off of our jobs. How all of these things are woven together providentially in the will of God and how even though we can never fully comprehend them, they might be used in some way and that we might have some kind of hope for us. So I I hope this isn't incoherent. I hope that this is helpful. But we will see. So please pray for me. I hope that you pray for me every week as I preach the word, but pray especially for today. Turn with me to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. It's toward the front of your Bible right after Esther, right before you get to Psalms and Proverbs. So if you think about where we've been in Proverbs, if you can, your Bible kind of falls open there, just turn back to the left a couple of books. Job is thought to be by many the oldest book in the Bible, the very oldest that we have. And so understand that when we read of the struggles of Job, we read of the afflictions of Job, these are afflictions, these are struggles, these are realities that are as old as humanity itself. That these are as old as Genesis 3 is. These are as old as sin is. These are as old as pain is. These are as old as death is. So, stand with me. So we read God's word together. We'll do quite a bit of jumping this morning, but we're going to start in Job 1. We'll continue into verse to chapter 2. Begin in verse 13. So let me give you a little bit of setup. Before we get to verse 13, what has happened is the Bible tell, describes Job as a wealthy man. Job is a man with a beautiful family and a loving family. He's a man that has livestock and fields that are wide and known and famous. But more than anything else, Job is known as being a righteous man. And he's known for being a righteous man, not just among other men. He is known for being a righteous man before God himself. But Satan says it must not be. He's only righteous because he's wealthy. He's only righteous because he's healthy. He's only righteous because he's got a family. He's only righteous because he's got cattle. He's only righteous because he knows not affliction. So God says, you may have him so long as you do not touch the man himself. 
And that's where we pick up in verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their older oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. He's lost his wealth. He's lost his children. He hasn't lost everything yet. Keep reading. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out. From the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. So Job has lost everything. Job has lost his money. Job has lost his farm. Job has lost his livelihood. Job has lost his sons and his daughters while they were still young, it says. Job has now lost his health. He's been inflicted with sores, with risings that go from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet. And in fact, it appears that Job has lost his wife. 
No one with which he can partner with. No one to encourage him. No one to lift him up. Instead, to say, obviously, you should just curse God so that you might die. And yet there's a, a gentle steadfastness to Job, isn't there? There's, a, there's a, a quiet, a subdued steadfastness to Job. After he loses his wealth, after he loses his children, he says, blessed be the name of God. When he's lost his health and he's lost his wife and he's lost everything else that he has to his name, it's a bit more subdued, but yet he still says, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And essentially saying, I don't get it, I don't like it, but I, I trust the will of God. I don't know how to put all of this together. I don't know how all of this is woven together. I don't know, but all I know is that I have to just entrust myself to the will of God. You see, in moments like this is when you learn a lot about your faith. Moments like this walking into pink nurseries where there is no baby that you learn a lot about your faith. It's riding home from the hospital with a car seat and no baby that you learn a lot about your faith. It's coming home from work trying to figure out how you're going to tell your wife that you don't have a job anymore, you don't have income anymore, that you learn a lot about your faith. It's when you get the call about the wreck of your son that you learn a lot about your faith. It's when a church goes through difficulty and struggle and hardship that you learn a lot about the faith. It's when you get to that place where Job is, where there's nothing left but you and God. Where there's nothing left to look at, there's nothing left to enjoy, there's nothing left to know, there's nothing left to cling to. The only thing that is left is God. And so will you cling to God or not? In the mountaintops of life, clinging to God is easy. In the peaks of life, in the celebrations of life, clinging to God is easy. All, everybody talks about God at graduation day. Everybody talks about God on wedding day. But it's when you graduate from college and don't get a job that you have trouble. It's when your marriage feels like it's imploding that God seems so far away. So struggles are coming, brothers and sisters. If we learn nothing else from the first two chapters of Job, we can learn that storms are coming. We can learn that rock-bottom experiences in life are coming. That for every man and every woman of God, at some point you will get to the place in which the only thing left is you and him. And it's in those tests, it's in those stormy waters that you find, about, find out about your boat. It's when the rain is beating against your house that you learn about the foundation upon which it was built. I know that some of you are struggling. I know some of you are struggling. Some of you are struggling. We have grandparents for Megan and Justin here now, and you're struggling. Some of you have known them for a long time, and you're struggling. Some of you have got issues in your own marriage, and you're struggling. You've got issues at home. You've got issues with your children, and you're struggling. 
Maybe it just feels like it's just you and God. Where will you turn? Where will you turn? What will you trust? Turn with me to Job 13. So Job's had what so many of you have probably experienced as you go through hardship. And we can learn from it too. Job has had friends coming in who think they have wisdom. In fact, they do not. He's had these people that have come and they say, Surely, Job, you have sin in your life. Surely, Job, you should repent. Surely, Job, you should turn away and repent so that God might restore you. But in fact, one of the lessons of the whole book of Job is that God sometimes allows his children, his righteous children, cleansed by the blood of Jesus himself, purchased by his death, to go through the valleys of the shadow of death. So you have all these friends coming and giving this cheap band-aid advice when in fact they should just come and be there. They should just come and read the scriptures with him. Let's learn from that. Let's be instructed from that. But We come to verse 13 and having heard from his friends, Job is in the midst of speaking. When he says something that John alluded to earlier during the time of music, verses 15 and 16. He says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. I'm not going to be quiet. I'm not, I'm not happy with the situations that they are. I'm not happy with the pain that's in my life. I'm not happy that I lost my little girl. I'm not happy that I lost my job. I'm not happy that I can't have children. I'm not happy that my marriage is falling apart. I'm not happy about it. I'll tell God, I will be, I'll be honest with God, I'll be transparent with God. But this will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. That though I'm not happy, I know he is in control. I know that I can hope in him. I know that I can rely upon him. I know that I can rest in him somehow. So you see the place where Job is. Job is in that place where there's nothing left but him and God. There's nothing left for him to look to. There's nothing left for him to, to hold on to. And you know what he's doing? He's just clinging as, as tightly as he can. As he feels like maybe he's losing his grip, but he's clinging to God and clinging to God and clinging to God. God, where are you? God, I have no other hope. God, you slay me, and yet I hope in you. So I don't get it. I don't understand it, I don't like it, but I just, I just hold on to you, God, with everything that I've got. There are moments in our lives where that's all we can do, isn't it? Isn't there? Where we just go to God day after day after day. Where we even get to that point where we've got no tears left. We get to that, that day where there's just numbness or there's just pain, there's just, there's just agony, there's just strife, there's just misunderstanding and confusion and chaos. And so we're way past the formulaic prayers. We're way past the, the rehearsed uh, blessings. Instead we cry out to God in anger. We cry out to God in desperation. We cry out to God in loneliness. We cry out to God not knowing what if he hears us or not, but just saying that's all I've got to cling to and I'm holding on to it. 
You know, I think when, when I come to situations like this, as I was driving to the hospital on Thursday, driving home from the hospital on Thursday, as I was going and just over the weekend, you just, you can't help but ask God, I don't understand, say, tell God I don't understand. I don't understand. That was a little girl going to be raised in the house of God. That was going to be a little girl raised and discipled by mom and dad. I know that because I lived with Justin for almost 15 months, walking through the scriptures with him in a discipleship group. I know they had resolved before God to pour their life and to pour their faith into that beautiful little girl. So God, I don't understand how there are orphans born all over the world without anybody to love them. And how this little girl is not going to be born into a family that deeply loves you and deeply loves her. But you know, we come to that question and we come to that struggle. And we aren't sure how to process it. And we aren't even sure how that makes us feel about God. But I ask you brothers and sisters, where else would you turn? Where else would you turn? Evil is hard to understand. Brokenness is hard to understand. Death is hard to process. But just, just set God aside for a second and ask yourself honestly as you go through the rock bottoms of life, where else would you go? Would you go to secular atheism that says that all of the death is meaningless? All of death is random? All of death has nothing to, to offer you. Would you go to secular atheism that just says, well, you better just drink up and try to numb it away? You better go find a new woman that can make you forget it for five minutes. You better just go away. Is that where you would run? Would you run to the God of Islam? Who would say, obviously, you just didn't do good enough. You just didn't work hard enough. You didn't live holy enough. And so you're paying the price. Would you run to the gods of karma? They say you're basically getting what you deserve of some, in some way. You're getting what you deserve. I don't have good answers. But I can tell you, brothers and sisters, there is only one place for us to turn. And it is the God whose mercies are manifold. It is the God who says, I will take all things and work them together for the good of those who love me. It is the God who says, I will take the greatest tragedy in your life and make it the first line of your testimony. It is the God that will take you and will walk through the valley of the shadow of death with you so that you might get to the other side of this momentary affliction and understand for a second the weight of glory. not a clean answer. It's not a clean answer. But it's the only answer. I don't know where else it can be. I've tried to figure it out. I've questioned God on this very subject for the last three years. How, God, can evil exist in a world where you are sovereign? And the only answer I can come to is that it serves a greater good that we can't see. And that we can't understand. And that we can't perceive on this side of 
eternity. And I believe that that very much is in Job's view here. Though you slay me, I will hope in you. Though I curse you, I know that you will be my salvation. Do you notice who's quiet here? We, we saw God interacting with Satan. I don't really know how all of that works all of the time. But God hasn't said a word to Job. Job's struggling. Job's in the valley. Job's eaten up. Where's God? Where is the God that he had devoted his life to? Isn't it true that when we go through the valley, sometimes that seems to be when God is the farthest away? That sometimes it's like when we feel like we need him the most to speak the truth into our hearts and to speak grace into our lives and to speak mercy into our lives. It's like for a moment it just goes completely silent. It's like when you get to that place you think, I'm just going to hang it up with the marriage, it's over. We've hurt each other too bad. A lot of times it feels like God's quite very quiet then, doesn't it? When you come home to an empty house, it often feels like God is silent. When you lose a child, when you lose a parent, it feels like God isn't there sometimes, doesn't it? I know some of you are struggling. I hope you're listening. He turns to chapter 38. After 38 chapters of silence, God speaks to Job. After 38 chapters of silence. And some of you, you're in the midst of that silence, and the pressure seems to be breaking your house in half. You're in the midst of the silence, you're in the midst of the struggle, and, and the rains are beating against your house, and you just aren't sure that your house is going to stand for another second. Come with me to Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. And prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far you shall come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began? And caused the dawn to know its place. That it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. It is changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment from the wicked. Their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. 
he continues on with the same train of thought for the next couple of chapters. So in response, how does, how does God present himself to Job? Job is weak. Job is, is buckling under the pressures of life. Job is buckling under the pain of life. Job is questioning God and clinging to God and feeling as though his grip is being lost. And what does God say? Job, I've got you. I've got you. I've got you. All of this is working. All of this is coming together for something greater. All of this, I am in control, Job. I am reigning on my throne. I am not pacing. I am sitting. Job, your ways are not my ways. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. Your timing is not my timing. But I have not betrayed you, Job. I have not betrayed you. That the same God that formed the oceans and sank the foundations of the earth, the same God that controls the distance of the waves and mounts the sun in the sky is the God that is with you in the midst of this momentary affliction. And I will not betray you, Job. All of this, according to my sovereign power and with my sovereign goodness, is working together providentially, Job. Are you in the silence of life? Are you in the silence of life? Your ways are not his ways. Your thoughts are not his thoughts. And that's hard to hold on to. I know. But you can trust his sovereign power. And you can hope in his sovereign goodness. Again, where else will you turn? Where else will you run? What else will you do? Look at Job 42. Having heard from God, after 38 chapters of silence, he hears chapters 38, 39, 40, and 41, God's response. And listen to how Job speaks afterward. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Can I just stop for a second and say on one hand that it's difficult, and on the other hand that it's glorious. On one hand it is difficult that sometimes the purposes of God involve pain. Sometimes it is, it is difficult that sometimes the will of God involves suffering. But it is glorious that the good means and the good ends to which that pain is aimed will not be stopped, will not be thwarted. The will of God will be carried out. It is unstoppable, unshakable. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You hear what Job says there? When I had my family, and when I had my wealth, when I had life all working out and all feeling good, I knew who you were. I had heard of your good ways. 
I had known about what you had done. I knew about what you were capable of. But now, having went through hell on earth, now I don't just know it. I have seen it with my own eyes. There's a depth to Job now that didn't exist before. There's a, there's a richness to his reality with God that he didn't have before. There's a, a worship that is too wonderful for him to even really express. See, God comes and he restores Job. He gives him twice as much as he has. He restores his family. And Job looks back and he realizes that what hurt in the beginning helped in the end. That according to the providence of God and the work of God and the moving of God in his life, that that which seemed unbearable to him in that moment is actually what God used to shape him into being who he would ultimately be and to be used for God's glory in a way that he could never comprehend. And I know what you're, some of you are thinking. Well, that sounds good because Job had a fairy tale ending. But I know people who divorced and it never got fixed. I know people who lost their children and they never felt right. I know people who lost their job and never got another one. Brothers and sisters, turn with me to Revelation 19. It's the last book in your Bible. Almost at the end of it. What I want you to see this morning is that if you are a child of God, if you really know him, if you have really been brought in and covered in the righteousness of Jesus, if you have repented of your sin and said, Jesus, you get all of my life forever, if that describes you, if you've been adopted into the household of God, let me paint for you a picture. Because what I want you to know is that maybe restoration doesn't come in your 80 years here. But for 80 billion years and billions more and billions more, you will experience the full consummation and restoration of God in a way that will be imperceivable to you. God used this passage last night to minister to me as I thought about Megan. And I hope it ministers to us this morning. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 6, is describing what is known as the marriage supper of the Lamb. You'll remember we talked about this in Matthew 8 when we talked about the centurion. When, when Jesus looks at this Gentile soldier and he says, One day you're going to join me at the table. Abraham's going to be there. Jacob's going to be there. Isaac's going to be there. And you, a Roman soldier with no stake in the household of Israel, you're going to be there. Strange people are going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now this is what a clearer description of what that looks like. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride, that's us, that's the church, that's, that's me, that's you, that's Justin, that's Megan, that's us. This bride has made herself ready and it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. 
Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. He goes on to describe the new heaven and the new earth. Verse in chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to to me it is done i am the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end to the thirsty i will give from the spring of water of life without payment the one who conquers will have this heritage and i will be his god and he will be my son but as for the cowardly the faithless the detestable as for murderers the sexually immoral sorcerers idolaters and all liars their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur which is the second death do you see the picture no more tears. No more mourning. No more tragedy. No more dying babies. No more grieving parents. No more death. Instead, we're going to be gathered around a supper table as the bride of Christ. And you know who's going to be there? Not just me. And not just you. Not just Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not just the centurion from Matthew 8. There are going to be children there. There's going to be babies there. I'm convinced of it. Whenever they think so often the prophets as they look forward to that end day when all of it will be fully consummated. You think about Isaiah 11. You know what it says? It says that there's going to be a wolf and a lamb lying together at the same time. No aggression. It says that there's going to be a, a lion and a fatted calf hanging out together, no aggression. And it says, you know who's going to be leading them? Like on a rope, like around a petting zoo? A child is going to be leading them around. It says that a child will pray, will play around the den of the cobra. The child will reach his hand into the hole of the adder and he will not be struck. I am convinced that one day we will sit at the wedding supper of the Lamb and right with us all will be Avery Brook. Covered in the blood of Jesus. Covered in the righteousness of Christ himself. By the provision of God. We are not without hope, brothers and sisters. We are not without hope. One day you're not going to have to have a racing heart about where your children are. One day your heart's not going to race about the condition of your marriage. One day it's, your heart's not going to race 
about the paycheck that's, not, that's dried up and not coming back. One day, you will lie at the, at the supper table of the king, and you will be his bride, and you will experience his immeasurable kindness and mercies every single moment of every single day forever. So in closing, I want you to stand with me. And I want to read over us Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18 and all the way to the end. Because when Paul is writing these words, this is what he has in view. This is the trajectory that he has in mind. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. Follow with me. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected in it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this we hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We are those brothers, church. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we were being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us pray together, church. Heavenly Father, we do all we can do.